Thank you so much for being part of Parkside Green's Bible study. This is it. It's our, it's our last session for the fall, and we'll be on break until January 11th or January 15th for the Sunday group, when we'll start up again with Luke chapter 15. But for now, the question for our last session is who comes first? Not Abbott and Costello, who's on first, but who comes first? You know, we often debate who's first in this sport or who's first in this business. And, and this week, as we study Luke 14 together, we'll see Jesus' surprising answer to the question, who comes first? Needy people, in verses 1 to 6, and also in verses 12 to 14. Humble people, verses 7 to 11. Willing people, verses 15 to 24. And all-in people in verses 25 to 35. So we start with verses 1 to 6 and 12 to 14. According to Jesus, needy people, people in need, come first. I know it was one Sabbath when Jesus went to dine at the house of a ruler of the Pharisees, and all the table guests were watching carefully because there was a man before them who had dropsy, probably what we call today edema. There was excess fluid gathering in various parts of his body, maybe swollen up. And, and the lawyers and Pharisees in the home wondered what Jesus would do when faced with a needy person on the Sabbath. Some think the man was a guest. Others think he was actually planted to trap Jesus. We don't know. But either way, Jesus asks whether it's lawful to heal on the Sabbath or not. <laughs> the Pharisees apparently didn't want to lose the argument, so they just remained silent. Jesus proceeds to heal, heal the ill man and send him away. And then he asked the lawyers and Pharisees a second question. Which of you, having a son or an ox that has fallen into a well on a Sabbath day, will not immediately pull him out, right? You're not going to call down the well, uh, hey, son, could you just hang in there until the sun goes down, Sabbath's almost over, and then we can get you. No, they, they knew they were stuck. They could not reply to these things. The debate was over, checkmate, so to speak. If their animal or their son fell into a well on the Sabbath, they would rescue them. So why shouldn't Jesus rescue and heal this man on the Sabbath day? For Jesus, extra-biblical Sabbath laws that humans had developed over the years did not come first. People in need came first. And we see the same idea again if you look ahead to verses 12 to 14. Jesus said to the man who had invited him, the, the prominent Pharisee, When you have a dinner or banquet, do not invite your friends or your brothers or your relatives or rich neighbors. Why not? Sue and I sometimes have friends or relatives or neighbors over for dinner. But Jesus says the thing is that they will probably invite you in return and, and you'll be repaid. See, it's like a reciprocal relationship. I do something nice for you and you do something nice for me. There's nothing special there. You got your reward already here on earth. But, Jesus says, when you give a feast, invite the poor, the crippled, the lame and blind, and you will be blessed because they cannot repay you. Instead, you will be repaid by God, 
at the resurrection of the just. See, in God's economy, it's not the wealthy or friends or even family who come first. People in need come first. The poor, the crippled, the lame, the blind. Hospitality is not a a payback arrangement. It's a chance to show radical generosity and care for those who are economically deprived or physically impaired. That's just what Jesus had done for the man with dropsy. There was no reciprocity there. He just gave to him and tended to his needs. So be like that. Be like Jesus. Needy people come first. And we'll see in verses 7 to 11, humble people also come first. Humble people also come first. You remember the setting is still those who had been invited to dine at the house of the, the ruler of the Pharisees. And when Jesus noticed how they were like, jockeying for position or choosing the places of honor, maybe the places co- closest to the host, he told them a parable, which I think would have been very powerful in their honor-shame culture. He says, when you're invited by someone to a wedding feast, do not sit down at a place of honor, lest someone more distinguished than you be invited. And then the host might end up asking you to give your spot to the VIP and you'll have the walk of shame to take the lowest spot, maybe the only one that's left at the end of the table. So the way to avoid being humiliated is to be humble. If you start out by sitting at that lowest place, your host may end up asking you to move up higher, bringing you honor in the presence of all the wedding feast guests. The lesson seems to be everyone who exalts himself will be humbled, but he who humbles himself will be exalted. So rather than promoting ourselves, we should accept the spot that God has for us. According to Jesus, humble people come first. Now, I don't think Jesus' point here is like giving etiquette tips, much less strategies for getting the best seat at the table. Remember, if you start down here, you might end up there. (laughs) No, it's a parable, right? It's using an earthly illustration to teach a spiritual truth. And the spiritual truth, you'll notice, is not in the present tense, but in the future tense. Everyone who exalts himself now will be humbled in the future. And he who humbles himself now will be exalted in the future. It's, it's like what we read from Jesus' brother in James chapter 4. Humble yourselves before the Lord and he will, future tense, exalt you. The way of the world is to build yourself up and put others down. I mean, just think about the ads leading up to the recent elections we had. Right? I'm great. My opponent is terrible. Vote for me. <laughs> But according to Jesus, it's not the powerful and proud who come first. Needy people come first and humble people come first. And in a third section, we'll see that willing people come first. Now, we're still in the same setting. Jesus is dining at the house of the the ruler of the Pharisees. And when one of those who reclined at table heard what Jesus had said, about people in need and humble people and the resurrection of the just, this guest said to Jesus, blessed is everyone who will eat bread in the kingdom of God. Now, we can't be sure, 
but it may, it may have been an attempt to shift away from several uncomfortable subjects that had come up at the dinner party. I mean, just consider, think about all that had happened since Jesus had entered this Pharisee's house. Jesus had healed on the Sabbath, silencing the lawyers and Pharisees there. Jesus had noticed how they were all choosing the places of honor, and then he told them a parable about taking the lowest place. I mean, that, that had to sting. Jesus had told his host that he shouldn't just invite friends and relatives and rich neighbors. He should invite the poor, the crippled, the lame, and the blind. And I'm guessing not many, maybe not any of those people were at the dinner. So there's got to be some tension in the room, don't you think? And that's when someone tries to maybe shift or change the subject with the inclusive statement, how oh, blessed is everyone who will eat bread in the kingdom of God. To which Jesus replies with another story. A man once gave a great banquet and invited many. And their custom back then was to send out two invitations. The first was almost like a, an advance, save the date, which also got a commitment from the person who was uh, invited. And then the second would be on the day of the actual banquet when a servant would announce to the guests, hey, everything's ready, come on over. But even though they had the advance notice and, and presumably had committed to come, when the time for the banquet actually arrived, the initial guests all started to make excuses. Uh, one said, I've bought a field and I must go out and see it. Uh, another said, I've bought five yoke of oxen and I go to examine them. Now, you'd think that uh, they'd already know about the field and the oxen before they bought them. That the, why do they have to go look at them and examine them now? But whatever the case is with that, they were putting financial and occupational concerns above the banquet that represents God's kingdom. We can find all kinds of excuses for, for neglecting and, and rejecting God's offer of the kingdom. Finances and work are important, but they cannot be first. And then a third person said, well, I've married a wife and therefore I can't come. So familial concerns were crowding out the kingdom of God. Those who thought they had something better to do were just going to miss out. And when the servant reported these pretty lame excuses to the master, he became angry. And he told the servants to go quickly into the streets and lanes of the city where he could bring in the poor, crippled, blind, and lame to the banquet. You notice, of course, these are the same ones that had been mentioned earlier in verse 13, kind of like Israel's outcasts on the margin. And often, it's those who seem unlikely who actually enter God's kingdom. They knew this was the best offer ever, and they came in. But there was still more room, so the master orders his servant to go into the highways and the hedges outside of the city, maybe representing Gentile outsiders, and compel more people to come in and fill the house, perhaps urging them to overcome their feelings of unworthiness. Jewish leaders may reject God's kingdom invitation, but the banquet will go on. God's purposes will not be thwarted by human rejection. God loves to fill his kingdom with people, but those who excluded themselves, those who were originally invited but were unwilling to come, 
they would not taste of the banquet. In God's kingdom, you see, willing people come first. Needy people, humble people, willing people, and all-in people, as we'll see in our final section, verses 25 to 35. The, the setting is now shifted from the Pharisees' dinner party to one in which great crowds were accompanying Jesus as he travels toward Jerusalem. But along the way, Jesus turns and says to the great crowds, if anyone comes after me and does not hate his own father and mother and wife and children and brothers and sisters, yes, even his own life, he cannot be my disciple. Whoever does not bear his own cross and come after me cannot be my disciple. Jesus must come first because God must come first and Jesus is God. We have to be all in with Jesus. Those who would be Christ's disciples must love Jesus more than their own families. And I don't think there's a, a literal hatred, but a comparative hatred here. Check out Genesis 29 verses 30 and 31 for, for a parallel. You see, in their culture, honor of parents and, and family commitment was highly valued. But Jesus says, we must love him more than family. And we must bear our own cross to come after Jesus. Being Jesus' disciple requires us to follow him fully, even to the point of dying for him, if that is required of us. And then Jesus told the crowds, the huge crowds, two stories or parables to lovingly warn them not to get involved with following him if they're not going to continue to follow him. Don't start what you haven't committed to finish. Like a builder who considers costs and resources before starting a project, we must count the cost of what it really means to be Jesus' disciple before committing ourselves to follow him. We need to seriously consider the personal sacrifice and commitment required to follow Jesus because we'll be mocked or ridiculed with a, a shameful outcome if we start to follow Jesus but don't complete, it says in verse 28, or finish, it says in verse 30, what we started. The question is, are we all in? Jesus does not want to be followed by large crowds of half-in, fair-weather disciples, but by a smaller group of all-in, fully committed disciples. Just as a king must carefully deliberate the potential outcome of a war before entering it, especially if he has fewer troops than his opponent, potential disciples of Jesus must deliberate whether they're willing to give up everything to follow him. Our primary allegiance must be to Jesus. Jesus must come first. And anyone who doesn't renounce all that they have cannot be Jesus' disciple, he says. Makes me wonder, do we sometimes present following Jesus as an easy thing rather than a hard thing? Are we prepared to renounce or give up anything that we have? Possession, family, career, you know, any earthly pursuit, if those things block us from totally following Jesus. Being Jesus' disciple is costly, but 
Jesus and his eternal kingdom are more than worth the temporary cost in this life. If people undertake careful consideration in planning a physical building or a physical war, how much more should we carefully consider our spiritual commitment to following Jesus? Salt is good, but if salt has lost its taste, how shall its saltiness be restored? Uh, such tasteless salt is actually a liability or like an environmental hazard that it can't be put into the soil, not, not even into the manure pile. Similarly, it's a big problem if we start to follow Jesus, but don't finish. Jesus' disciples cannot be halfway in, but must be all in, with eyes wide open, knowing what they're getting into. Jesus must come first. Jesus must come first. He who has an ear to hear, let him hear. Hear Jesus now, Jesus' teaching was not just for first century people, it's also for 21st century people like us. And I think each section of today's passage in Luke 14 has a, a main application for us. Number one, think about needy people. In Jesus' ministry, people in need came first before man-made Sabbath rules. And so I wonder, do we look out for people in need in the same way that Jesus did? Secondly, humble people. Jesus teaches us not to exalt ourselves or, or seek human honor, but to humble ourselves. Lord, may you make us truly humble in our minds and our hearts and all of our relationships. Thirdly, willing people. God's kingdom is filled with willing people. So do I let financial, or work, or family concerns keep me from the fullness of God's banquet? Am I willing to fully enter into his banquet? And fourthly, all in people. Am I part way in or am I all in? <laughs> Following Jesus above everything, even my own life. And what does it really look like to be all in with Jesus? Let's pray. Heavenly Father, we praise you for your compassion toward people in need, which we see reflected in your Son, Jesus. Show us how we can minister to people in need that you bring across our paths, knowing that we will be repaid at the resurrection. Forgive us also, we pray, for all the ways that we seek human honor and maybe even subtly exalt ourselves. Make us truly humble in our minds and hearts, we ask. And forgive us also, we pray, for times when we've made excuses and we've put other things ahead of you and your kingdom. So, not in order to save ourselves, but because you have saved us by your grace through faith in Jesus, we want to be all in in following Jesus. Make us, by your Spirit, we pray, to put Jesus first. It's through him that we pray. Amen.